Before we get to the podcast this week, Pit Stop USA offers a huge selection of parts and the best selection of racing safety equipment you will find anywhere, all at low everyday prices. Visit us today at pitstopusa.com. Pit Stop USA, live like legends. I also want to give love to two companies that not only mean a lot to Dirt on Dirt and Flow Racing, but I mean this mean a lot to me personally. First, Kaiser Manufacturing, who I think an argument could be made as one of the best companies in the history of short track racing, and FK Rodins, who again, isn't only wildly successful because of what they make, but wildly successful because of Maria and her entire team. I say this sometimes to people, and I really mean it. There aren't many people in this industry that I trust with my life, but Scott Kaiser and Kaiser Manufacturing with Integra Shocks and Maria Melillo and FK Rodins are on that list. If you've ever asked yourself, and you shouldn't have, but if you have, should I do business with these companies? The answer, without even thinking about it, should be yes. Kaiser and FK, it's as good as it gets. Also, please don't forget, if you're a Dirt on Dirt subscriber, you have full access to all of Flow Racing as well, all 1,000 plus live events, all the amazing content from the Chili Bowl to the World 100, and so much more in between one $150 price tag and access to both sites. That's about as good as it gets. DOD and Flow Racing, it's a match made in heaven. Let's go. And most importantly, welcome to DirtOnDirt.com. There aren't many people in the history of racing that are known by just one name, or hell in the case of this week's podcast guest, a number. But that's what we have this week. To those in the know in late model racing, Ronnie Johnson was simply known as Five, his very famous car number. And how badass is that? This guy is referred to not even as a name, but just a number, the number five. Uh, the interview with Ronnie is poignant, it's direct, it's honest, and he truly is He's a gem of the history of dirt late model racing. You're going to find out dirt late model racing to him is not a passing thing. Uh, he devotes his entire life to it, and I don't mean he used to. He still does. I think you're going to enjoy the conversation with the Chattanooga Flash that we've got coming up. But before that, this. Our Flow Racing Night in America miniseries kicks off this week, and I'll say this as simply as I can and from as the heart as I can. I really hope you like it. And I say that very genuinely in the fact that this is something that I personally have wanted to do for a long time, highlighting midweek dirt late model racing to a big audience on weeknights. It's been a dream of mine for over a decade. Selling the company to Flow Sports has allowed me the resources and personnel to see that dream come true. And thus, Flow Racing Night in America will be born this week at 4.11 on Thursday night. And it'll be different. We'll have a studio show anchoring the night, commentary from experts, and really quick shows, two and a half to three hours at the most. And, and we're going to rip the program through. I just wanted to make a note of that as we're starting this week. And, and I hope you guys fall in love with it like I have. The idea, the, the execution, all of it is really my brainchild. Of course, I've got a great team led by guys like Ben Shelton, who's gone above and beyond and others, but I want you to love it like I love it. And it starts this week at 411, Thursday night, $20,000 to win in East Tennessee. Huge shout out to Mitch McCarter for being the first promoter to work with us on this. 
I'm just, I'm ready. I'm ready to go Thursday night. Okay, that was the warm and fuzzy. This is a little more direct, my second point before RJ. Summer Nationals. Announced last week they've added four more races, which now makes it 35 total races on the schedule, stretching from June 15th to August 21st. Now listen, I love Sam Driggers. I consider Sam Driggers a great friend and a longtime resource, mentor, everything in dirt late model racing. I have a great relationship with the folks at WRG. I'm from Fairbury, in essence. I'm 12, 13 miles from Fairbury. Nobody loves the Hell Tour more than I do. But 35 races from mid-June to late August, I'm not sure that's the core directive of what the Summer Nationals is. I joked with Sam many times over the past several years that the Hell Tour needs to be, in my mind, 21 races scheduled across 22 or 23 days, basically scheduled right in a row with one or two off days from the third week in June until the second week in July, get back to your roots, run them mainly in and around Illinois and Indiana in closely bordered tracks like 34, maybe Wilmot, I-55, of course. It makes it easier on the racers to digest. It makes it easier on the fans to digest. And just a tour that we can all really wrap our heads around. I, I get there are some political considerations now, but this... 35 races with 67 days between the first and last race, I think that is headed the wrong direction. The entire core premise of the Summer Nationals was day after day racing across the Midwest. This has turned in more into more of a stop-and-go tour that has too many stops on it. I, I will always love it. I will always support it. will always cover it. But I'd love to almost figure out a way to create two tours, that old Summer Nationals tour, and then maybe that Outlaw Nationals tour in August that they used to have that Moyer would just run roughshod over. If the idea is that we have too many tracks that want dates, maybe we need to do that. But I still say 21 to 22 races for the Summer Nationals is about perfect. Let's find a way to get back to that if we can and still find a way to keep all these racetracks happy. There has to be a way to do it. All right, enough. I'm off my soapbox. Let's get to RJ. We all know how certain guys in our industry are respected and revered. You've got Billy Moyer, Scott Bloomquist, Freddie Smith, Charlie Schwartz, Larry Moore, just beloved people that not only most race fans love, but those inside the industry, the true insiders, the people know that a lot, the people who know even a lot more than me about dirt late model racing. The people that those guys and gals adore and respect. I'm talking about that list of names that the tire guys and the manufacturers, the fellow drivers, when you bring them up, they say, oh yeah, he's not only a great, great driver, but he's one of a kind and he changed the sport forever. And after really diving into this interview and doing a lot of research for it, I think, and I mean this very sincerely, I think Ronnie Johnson might be number one on that list. I'm not sure anyone is more beloved by the people who know the sport of dirt late model racing than RJ. And he joins me now on the Integra Shocks and Springs Hotline. Ronnie, I want to start with this question first, because to me, it's the most important. I know you had what I think we can call a really, really tough battle with COVID and COVID pneumonia that followed that. How are you doing, sir? And how bad was it, Ronnie? Well, we're certainly getting better each day here, but I started getting sick uh, like Christmas Eve, and I just thought it was a bad cold, and then the first week of January comes along, and I go get tested, and, you know, we've got COVID, and the doctor tells me, 
there's not much you can do. You know, here's an inhaler, here's some cough medicine, go home and be miserable for a couple of weeks and you'll be fine. So before a couple of weeks was up, I started getting this really bad pain in my right lung. So I go back to the ER and find out that we've got blood clots in my lungs. And so I stayed in the hospital about three days and which was three days more. I wanted to be there. I mean, I know there's a lot of people that's been there longer, but they sent me home and, uh, and, and I proceeded to be miserable for through January there. And then my doctor tells me the last week of January that I have COVID pneumonia and that it's going to take months to, you know, to recover from it. And I just, I couldn't, I couldn't believe that. I couldn't accept that, but here we are, uh, for about seven weeks past that now, and I'm I'm doing great. I'm going to be fine, but um, I've certainly I've never had anything get a hold of me like this, and it's just hard to get rid of it. Uh, if it gets in your lungs, it's just hard to get rid of it. And I am a senior now, so you know I'm at, in that at risk category. But I think we're going to be fine. It's just going to take a bit. Well, and I last thing I want to say about this, I a few of the folks that I talked to while I was researching this interview, they used the terms last breath, Ronnie, that a few folks close to you said he might have had his last breath if this could have gone a couple different ways. I mean, is that I guess that it was that serious and when you hear those words, Ronnie, last breath, what do you think when you hear that? It was it was it was scary the the first couple of weeks of January was scary. I couldn't I couldn't even get up. And I mean, the only way I could breathe was laying on my back. I mean, breathe normally. And it, it wasn't like I was laying on my back gasping for air like a fish out of water, but that's the only way I could breathe normally. If I got up to go to the bathroom and to go get a drink of water, it was a struggle to get back mm. to the bed. And I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't shower. I mean, I just couldn't, I couldn't get in the air. I couldn't breathe. And the first day, the first day that, that that really happened there, I guess I kind of panicked a little bit, and we, Pat and I got excited, and I mean, it was it was scary there for me. I, I wasn't sure. I mean, I'd already said, told her I loved her and said my little uh-huh. prayer, just in case, because I, I didn't know it was, um, but January was a real struggle. Well, uh, you know, post-COVID topic, I wasn't sure exactly where I wanted to start this interview. So so bear with me. I've got a lot to cover with you. One thing that became very clear to me, Ronnie, after talking to everyone about you, is that every single person I talk to thinks you are one of the best dirt late model drivers ever. To a man, they all said that. Whether it's Purvis or Moyer or Bloomquist, Ronnie Johnson belongs in that conversation. Now, you and I talked a little bit before this interview, and I said... I don't think you get the same level of respect those guys do. Why is that? But you kind of had a different take on it. You said, you know, I look, go through these old Facebook groups and people seem to always remember my name and I feel good about my place in history. So I guess I'm wrong about that, RJ. Is that right? You feel, you, you don't feel disrespected and damn it, I want people to respect you more. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't feel disrespected. I, I mean, we, we got to do a lot in racing. I mean, I'm... I've not got to race since November because of, you know, winter came and then the COVID deal, but, but I'm not done. Uh, you know, we're racing on a much more of a uh, local level, maybe not even regional anymore, but I love to race and I want to be competitive. Um, but we got to do a lot. Um, but there, there's certainly guys out there that I've, that I feel like are 
you know, are, are better, better racers, better drivers than me, but, but we, we've had a good run. That's for sure. Absolutely. Well, and you said you, you scroll through Facebook all the time. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. You see, you see all these old images of Ronnie Johnson and stuff pop up. Does it kind of fascinate you that the legend of Ronnie Johnson lives on, man? These you, those old cars and everything you had. I mean, people people don't forget you, do they? I mean, it it amazes me. It really does, um, because like I said, for 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 several weeks, I mean, uh, for several weeks there. I mean, there was basically nothing I could do. I mean, that was my entertainment, you know, was, uh, I, I was kind of trying to sleep through my misery, but when I was, when I was awake, you know, I'm, I'd be on Facebook or Twitter or whatever. And, you know, everything that I follow on there is racing related, you know, the racetracks and the, you know, the groups and, and that. And I even like, like yesterday morning, uh, I, I saw a couple of pictures, uh, you know, from, from a while back and I show it to my wife. I'm just, I'm amazed that, that I'm remembered and, and, you know, thought of, uh, so yes. <laughs> you know, your career, Ronnie, to me is one of the most interesting careers in the history of late model racing. Without question, you're a superstar of the sport, two dirt track world championships that we're going to talk about in a little bit. 19 have a Tampa victory, 62, Southern All-Stars wins. That's still the most SAS wins of all time. You burst onto the scene in the 70s. You're a household name of the 80s and 90s. But then you have this moment of your career in the early 2000s where, for the most part, I don't want to say you leave super late model racing because you still dabble, but Mike Vaughn, a very important guy in your career, he's starting his crate stuff around 0405, and you, in essence, kind of align with Mike, and you go crate racing. You've obviously, like I said, dabbled in a super, but that really, after a storied super late model career in 0405, that was kind of the end of that portion of your career. I don't know that anybody has ever asked you this, but what was it and why did you basically say, was it just finances where you said, you know what, I'm going with Mike and we're going to go do this crate thing and we're going to make it go. What, what made that decision and what led to it? Well, just really <clears throat> kind of a crossroads there from, um, I, I got, I was very fortunate to get involved with Bob Miller and the Miller brothers family, Miller brothers, Co. Miller mm -hmm. brothers construction in the, you know, I think 89, we raced with him from like 89 to 90 to 95. And, uh, had, had a really good run there. I mean, I, that's what let me go to the dirt Trek world championships and that sort of thing. Um, and <clears throat> we had, we had a lot of success there and, and that thing kind of ran its course and, so we, you know, we raced with Bloomquist there in 96 and then in like 97, 98, 99, 2000, right there, I'm still trying to go to like, I'm still trying to go to the most of the Hava Tampa races, which they'd branched out and they'd gotten, you know, more of a, you know, more of a national type right, deal right. where it started out as kind of a Southern thing or whatever, Eastern thing. And, but anyway, I was trying to do all that and I was basically trying to, I'm not going to say I didn't have any help or any sponsorship, but I was basically trying to do it myself. I mean, after, like when I raced with Bob, you know, this guy's calling up and, and he's like, Hey, I, I bought you a new motor. And, and I'm like, well, we got a good motor. And, and Bob would be like, well, I can probably find somebody to run it. To you. And I'm like, Oh no. You know, so I, you know, this guy's keeping me in, you know, I, I mean, any, 
anything we needed. We had it, and I didn't even have to ask for it. I didn't even realize how good a situation I had with him and his family. Um, but then after, of course, when I drove for Scott, you know, I wasn't having to buy race cars and engines and that. But 97, 98, 99, 2000, 2001, I'm still trying to go to a lot of those have a temper races. And we're still trying to go to the to the Dream and the Dirt Track World Championship and the World 100 and the Pittsburgher. And, and we're still trying to go to Florida. And, and man, I just, I just couldn't do it. And it was, you know, kind of a crossroads coming there and a really, really hard uh, period of having to accept that I was probably going to have to, I don't know, scale back, if you will, or, or, you know, not, not chase that, you know, the, you know, the lucrative, you know, the, the big, the biggest races like we had done, you know, for a while there. And so it, it gets on into the 2000s and, and we're racing, you know, a lot more uh, regional in that. And, um, the, the deal with Mike Bone, I think it was 04. I wanted to go to the state race at, at East Alabama. And I wanted to run. I mean, you're down there for the whole weekend. You know, they got all that racing. You know, everybody calls it the 72 hours of Phoenix <laughs> City and that. And uh, so if you're going to go, you might as well run more than one class. Sure, sure. So I wanted to try to run three classes. And at the time, I had three cars. I had two and a half engines i had had an engine that was uh for one of the classes i think they call it sportsman and it was in the shop so but anyway you go to phoenix city it costs a lot you know there's a lot a lot of expenses they charge you park um you know you got entry fees and and all that and the 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 place is usually really hard on tires so you got a big tire bill so i was looking for somebody that might be willing to help me with expenses I didn't actually know Mike Vaughn. I knew of him. I knew that he was involved in racing. He was a big race fan. I'd seen his name on cars. And um, so I get his number and I call him up, tell him what I got on my mind. And I ask him if he would be interested in helping me with, uh, you know, the entry fees and maybe some expense money and that. And he was, he was all for it. And uh, so he asked me, he's, he's like, so you, you got, you got all these cars and motors. So I explained my situation with my, sportsman motor it's in the shop but it's going to be back so he had been racing uh, with he and don jenkins had been racing and they'd been running a, <coughs> a gm 604 crate engine and they'd been to withville or somewhere and they'd gotten a wreck you know in the last week or so and they were going to be out for a while and just so happens this one class that i'm that I'm short an engine for had an option for the 604 crate engine. Right. It, it, you know, like the, there was a weight break, and but so Mike's Mike's a car salesman, so he starts selling. <laughs> he starts selling me on this, you know, hey, why don't you come and get the 604 and we'll run it? And I wasn't interested in that because I mean, I I started to read an article in one of the racing publications about these crate engines, and I'm thinking, man, that's not for me. That's not that's not racing. That's, right. that's not what I want to do. And, you know, and uh, I'm already struggling because I'm not able to go race with my buddies, at, you know, at the World 100 or whatever. So, um, but anyway, it comes down. 
So Mike, Mike, you know, calls in his credit card and gets my, you know, some of my, you know, entries and that paid for. Well, then it comes the week of the race and I have to call Mike up and tell him that my engine's not going to be done. And we're, you know, thanks, but, and I'm sorry, but we're just not going to be able to run that class. So he keeps on and he convinces me to come down to Don's place, Don Jenkins, and put, we're going to pull this engine out and just, let's just put it in and go see what happens. <laughs> he so is a good I'm salesman. Like, he of, is a good salesman. Yeah. You know this. <laughs> so yeah, this guy's been good enough to do all this stuff for me. So, you know, uh, Don's place is down, you know, he's hour and a half away. So we go down there, they pull the engine out, I bring it home, put it in the car. And I had a pretty good little car there. I mean, we've been running really good. I mean, you don't want to go run three classes at a deal like this if you're not running good. So you know, <laughs> I was ready to tackle it, but we go down there, go out for hot laps. They throw the green and I swear I'm looking out both sides to see how many he's going to come by because it just felt like I wasn't going anywhere. But we were good. We were. You're not only good. You good. you were the fastest car in hot laps. Is that correct? I believe. Yeah. So yeah. So we end up. Uh, we you know long story short, we end up winning the race and you know whatever that class was and I think we might have run third in one of the other classes and maybe we didn't finish the other one or whatever. But um. But anyway, I'm I'm riding home and I think this race it paid like three thousand dollars to win or something and. Mike's just ecstatic. He's like, dude, I'll just keep the money. You can have it. So I'm riding home and I'm thinking, man, if this is, if this is backing up or if this is, you know, going down a class, it, it, it doesn't hurt. You know, I, I, I don't feel, I don't feel bad at all. And cause we've had success and basically that race, you know, bailed us out, you know, from, from what it costs to do the rest of it. And so you know, it's getting the end of the year there. We wind up, I think the next time we raced that car and that engine was, we went back to Phoenix City or East Alabama for the national race and we ran those classes again. Well, they made us add some weight. There were some people fussing about it, and, but you know, about that motor and that because, I mean, there was a few people running them, but it wasn't, it wasn't, a, it wasn't that popular of a engine at the time. And, but we go back and we win again and this race paid like five grand and so you know i think that uh and af after that i mean like the next year they had a class for that engine <laughs> you know they started up a class for it and and mike mike was ready to to do something there and he started his uh he started his series up the next year and um so, um, you know, we just, I mean, it was looking like it was, it was looking like this was something that was going to let me continue to race and be competitive. And as it's turned out, you know, that happens to be, I mean, that's like a bread and butter class for, I mean, there, there's so many tracks that, I mean, that's their, that's their top class. They, they, the, there's a lot of tracks that wouldn't even exist if it wasn't for, um, you know, the 604s and the 602s, and then, you know, Mike um, had, a, had a 525 deal. You know, he got he got involved with General Motors and Chevrolet, and, um, you know, Hoosier came aboard, and um, he put a really good deal together there uh, that, that'll, 
that a lot of, you know, I guess somebody else would have done it. Um, but Mike was the first. And he, he, he may or may not have been the first, but I think, I mean, I think he kind of showed everybody what, what was out there. And, and there's certainly been a lot of other people that have followed the model, but. Well, um, one one note I wanted to make about that, Ronnie, in September of '04, is Mike Vaughn claims that you were the first dirt driver in the United States of America to win a, a feature with a crate car. He said you were the first one to ever do that. You and I talked before, and you said maybe, maybe not. But one thing he did say, and I think this is exactly true, I think Mike Vaughn gets so much credit for for introducing crate racing into dirt late model racing, but he told me flat out, Ronnie Johnson is not only one of the coolest guys in the history of short track racing, I knew I needed Ronnie Johnson to make crate racing cool. Uh, I, I'm trying to think of the right way to ask that. Do you think you did that? Because I think you making that switch, and I know Purvis was dabbling there with Mike a little bit, but Ronnie, you going over there and doing that ushered in sort of a new era of dirt late model racing. Do you think you made crate racing cool, Ronnie? I don't think I did it single-handedly, but... Um but we certainly had a part in it and, and there's not, there's absolutely nothing wrong with, with racing the crate motors. I mean, it, I mean, if you, if you'll just look, I mean, if, if they pay 10 grand or if they pay, you know, which is, I don't know if Mike ever really wanted the, you know, he was looking at something that would not, not just a, like a, a national or regional series, you know, right. they laid out a program for, for weekly racing and you know with, with these engines and you know right on down to um the, the last year you know mike sold this deal and it still exists um he's just not part of it but you know he he got these like the the little modifieds have never really just never really took off around here for some reason i don't know why they do so good in the midwest but so he he's started this deal up with the 602s and the modifieds and now um you know i'll look these weekly tracks a lot of times that's their biggest car count but um but we we certainly had a hand in it but if they again there's been some big pay and crate races whether it was mike's races or someone else's put them on and when you see those races you're gonna see uh, you're going to see Ross Bales and Dennis Franklin. And, Super guys and, uh, coming over, right? You know, Kyle right. Bronson and yeah. even Scott Bloomquist and Brandon Overton. You're going to see those guys racing there. So there, it's, there's, you know, racing is racing. You know, we all want to race and we all want to be competitive. Um, so, so there, there's no shame in, in, uh, there's no shame in racing the crates over it. <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't make you any lesser of a man. I want to slip back to your uh, to your super career a little bit here. Some of the most iconic images in the history. I'm a big picture guy, right? Charlie Schwartz standing on top of his car, right? I mean, that's an iconic picture. Scott getting out of his car at Eldora with the long hair. When I'm a kid, Ronnie, I'm 8, 9, 10, 11 years old. Some of the most iconic pictures to me ever are your red and black five at Pennsboro winning the 92 and 94 Dirt Track World Championship. It's one of the best paint schemes ever. It's Pennsboro. It's fall, the leaves, just you on the front stretch. I, I just, I'll never get the pictures of you winning Pennsboro out of my head. What do you remember most about, I mean, you don't have to necessarily dive into like, every race nugget and note from 92 and 94, your first dirt tracks. But damn it, there was something magical about that. And that to me is really what 
erupted you onto the scene in 92 and 94 was Pennsboro. Those were some special years up there, weren't they? Absolutely. And, you know, that, that place was, uh, it's really crude, um, really crude racetrack. Um, good word. Typically needed crude. to go. Good word for it. To, good word for it. To, yeah. <laughs> primitive. And, uh, but, but that was part, that was part of the mystique. Um, but, but I went up there the first time I went, we went a couple of times in 81 when I drove for Bobby Paul, Paul's pipeline, he took me up there for the hillbilly and we ran fourth. So we couldn't wait to come back for the dirt track world championship, but I wrecked, I wrecked his car really bad the week before at atomic. And we had to go to, uh, Barry rights to put a whole front clip on, you know, in a week's time and to add salt to the wound, the transmission went out of Bobby's tow rig on the way back from atomic oh, that night. So we had, we, we went, first time I went to the dirt track world championship, you know, we were just not prepared. We were not ready. We had no sleep and didn't, didn't do well. We were actually wound up getting into the same incident that Jim Dunn got, whatever we got, all got together, spun out there, whatever in a heat race. And, uh, we had a broken spindle. So we didn't even try to run the B main the next day. It was spitting snow when we got up the next day, so we left. <laughs> Jim Dunn runs the B main and went and you know wins the whole deal. One of the most and, famous um, moments in the history of dirt track racing, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, first so, dirt track. Yeah. So I had a little part of that, but uh, but anyway, it didn't work out for us. But when I got involved with Bob Miller, I, I mean, I probably would have never been back to Pennsburg, but got involved with Bob. You know, he's up there in Eastern Kentucky, so I mean, that's not that far from Pennsboro. So when I started racing for him, we went to West Virginia Motor Speedway and we went to Pennsboro. And the first first year we went to Pennsboro, we didn't probably didn't make the race. I don't remember. Went back the next year, won a heat race, crashed on the first lap of the feature, which would have been ninety one. I know that was ninety one. We crashed in the dust on the back straightaway. Everybody <laughs> piled up. And um so, um, and again, to shorten the story, we, we actually fixed that car and wound up, uh, you know, fast forward to 92. I had a really, really good year in 92. And we were, we were winning a lot of races. Uh, we were still basically racing in the South, but a lot of those have a Tampa races we were winning. And we were winning a lot of, we were racing Atomic, Bulls Gap. Um, Tazewell, Newport, and we were winning a lot of races. We were winning, you know, some five and seven and ten thousand dollar races. You know, stuff that I'd never done before. And we went to uh, we went to Pennsburg in '92, and ended up, you know, winning the race. Um, and Bob was reluctant to go because he was racing with, uh, you know, he was uh, supporting Eddie Carrier Senior. Yeah at the time and eddie had gone up there and raced and had not had much luck and we had not had much luck there you know for a couple of years but we we ended up winning that and i mean that was just i mean it was just that was big uh didn't you you said you to me right ever, you, you said to me too ronnie that the pictures right you remember seeing the pictures and the blue sky and the fall leaves i mean that's like pinsborough just burned into your mind right yeah, well, fast forward to 94, I mean, it was absolutely like that. I remember, you know, seeing pictures. From, you know, I remember the day, but but we won again in 94 with a different car. Uh, kind of the same thing. You know, we were running really good. 
Um, but at Pennsboro, at that time, you really needed, I mean, they'd have 150 cars or so. So you really, you really needed to be able to draw a late number because that thing would just keep getting faster and faster and qualifying. So we were running good. Everything was, we had good equipment. We had a good team. And we were drawing that number. So we had fast time both those years. And that put us up front. Um, even though we, the second year, or the 94, second year we won it, we went there for a practice the day the day before and it wasn't rubbered up you know it wasn't like you had to have that luck you know we, we, we went out not left a couple of times and we were just really good so it was just meant to be but but definitely in 94 i mean it was just one of those falls where you know all the leaves are just beautiful and the blue sky i definitely remember the pictures and um so those were those were some really good times and then you know we, we were at pensburn 93 you know, between those two years and was probably going to run about eighth place and blew a motor up. And then I've been back a couple of times since then and didn't have any luck. Maybe didn't even make the race the last time or two that I went. So, I mean, but the place was, it was primitive and it was crude, but it was really good to me a couple of times for sure. Yeah. And, and just like I said, sort of vaulted you into this now. I mean, you were already a name, but it really kind of cemented your legacy forever. And, you know, speaking of legacy, your racing roots, Ronnie, you know, the Chattanooga Flash, right, from Chattanooga, Tennessee. Pretty easy to trace, though. Some may not know this. I'm hoping most race fans do, but somebody's going to hear this for the first time. Your father, of course, was the legendary Joe Lee Johnson, uh, winner of the inaugural World 600 at Charlotte, what would go on to be now what is called the Coca-Cola 600. Your dad won the first one ever. But I know your relationship with him was an interesting one. He also owned Cleveland, the dirt track down there, and you pretty famously would go a few years at a time without racing at Cleveland. You know, the rumor always was that Ronnie and Joe Lee are fighting or whatever. I think it's fair to say your relationship with him was up and down a little bit. Can you touch on that for me? And different than just a normal father-son relationship, Ronnie, and, and, and your dad was tough. I know he was tough, wasn't he? My dad was a product of the Great Depression. He was born in 1929, so he grew up hard. I mean, he grew up really hard. Um, and um, some people, I mean, here, here's a, a tidbit. My dad was actually, my dad and, and the family was actually from Calpin, South Carolina. I mean, right there where Barry Wright's at. So, you know, when I've, I've driven for, raced out of Barry's shop a couple of different times and interesting to, know that you know i have roots there but but my dad worked my dad worked really hard this guy he'd do more in a day than i could do in a week and you know more in a week than i could do in a month and you know he he just was really demanding uh and when when i you know we grew up and and this guy was running a paint and body shop and auto repair and uh trying to race a little bit so i wasn't i wasn't i mean i was around my dad but i wasn't really like i'm like i didn't grow up like following you know his uh steps you know at the races and that um but as as i got into my teens <clears throat> he was um kind of settling down a little bit he was kind of trying to get more interested in in uh another business that he'd started in cleveland tennessee so he was driving back and forth every day 30 30 miles every day and but um finally he uh and he was kind of trying to quit racing a little bit but he still 
driving some people's cars, some local cars. And so now, you know, I'm 14 or 15 or so. And, you know, I was, I'm around this racing and I mean, it was, I mean, I mean, it, it just consumed me, you know, it was, it was, it was what I wanted to do. It was what, it was what I was a part of. So, um, you know, finally, I, I'd wait. I'd, I'd be in like junior high school and sit there wishing the rain away all day on a Friday. So, so somebody <laughs> would take me out to Boyd Speedway so I could watch my dad come and and race. <clears throat> finally, he uh, he bought this guy out. Some guy had started building a car and had had a truck tow truck started and the trailer started. So. He, he buys this guy out and I guess he decides that he's going to try to do a little bit of racing. You know, we're going to do some racing here to get that stuff in this little shop that, that I'm standing in right now, this old shop that he, that he built after, um, um, after, you know, a year after the world 600 deal there in Charlotte where he has a little body shop and all. So he brings this thing in here and, you know, again, this guy gets up early and works late works hard so in a few weeks he realizes that he's probably not going to be able to finish this thing up so he gets a good friend of ours that lives nearby a guy by the name of jerry meadows who we've known forever and raced and jerry was a really good fabricator and welder he gets jerry to come over and help finish this stuff up so now you know i'm i'm out here and like my dad could do anything he could paint weld but he didn't he was so busy he didn't take the time. He probably didn't even know I was interested. But like with Jerry, Jerry was a perfectionist. And um, so now I'm learning to, you know, shape metal and weld and fabricate and, and, and that. Plus, after a while, my dad decides that he really don't have time to fool that car. So he's just going to let me and Jerry take it and race it. And, uh, of course, you know, Jerry's full-time job this guy never slept but that was my apprenticeship i'm about 15 there and that that was my apprenticeship in in racing um you know with that with a couple of summers there with that car racing with with jerry and uh um but then you know later on so so along in there i decide i finally i get i guess i'm like 17 now and that's three, four, five years older than everybody starts racing now. But I finally asked my dad, you know, if I can build a car, get a car, or whatever. And and that's kind of where, where it started. I graduated high school when I was 17 in 1973. And my dad bought a guy's 56 Chevy that he'd been running like in a hobby class at Cleveland. This thing had like a short block in it. And then the rest of the car so he had some heads and that and we put the car together and that's that's when i started racing and I, I think my dad thought it was all right for me to race but that i probably wouldn't take it serious he was probably hoping right that i wouldn't but i mean there was did I mean, you that, guys that, ever have those knockdown knockdown drag outs though rj you know you know and i'm just going to be honest with you famously from the outside people would say ronnie and jolie don't get along they don't get along they don't get along but i hear you talking about him with reverence 
So was that kind of overblown? And just t- take me into that a little bit. I mean, did you have knockdown dragouts, or, or what was it? No, no, I would, I was, I would have not been, I would have been no match for knockdown dragout with my dad. <laughs> <laughs> no way, no way. My dad, I never, my dad never laid a hand on me, but he didn't have to. You know, when you, if you if you did something wrong in his eyes, you knew it, and you knew you what you might not even be sure what you had done, but whatever it was, you was going to stop it. But um, but he, he was really strict, and and um, I mean he could be a difficult man with with everybody. But I was a guy that was around him all the time. So when I like when even there when I'm you know 16, 17, 15, 16, 17, or whatever on the weekends, you know I'd go at the weekends and on the, like summer vacation, I'd go to work with him. So then when we started when we were both racing, we both had a car. There's two race cars in this little 25 by 40 <laughs> building here and we're racing. And after like a couple of years, I'm running the same race that he's running and, you know, I'm in the same class or whatever. So we're getting up in the morning, we're riding to work together, we're working together. We come home, we're working on the cars. We, you know what I'm saying? We were really like probably around each other too much, but <laughs> The the thing about not going to Cleveland there after, I mean, my dad didn't get, my dad didn't have the track when I first started racing. He didn't get it for several, several more years. He first leased it and then he bought it. But the problem there was, and, and I've, and I've always seen this, it doesn't, doesn't matter if it's me or anywhere you go and there's family involved in a racetrack, it's just not good to, to race there. Sure. I mean, we'd go. You know, I'd pull up there at Cleveland and, and get out of my truck to go buy an armband and everybody's looking at you and you can just tell they're like, here's this guy, you know, he's going to get this, he's going to get that. And I promise you, anybody know my dad, that was not going to be the case. He, you we were paying, go, you were paying to get in. <laughs> yeah, we, I mean, I could go somewhere else and race the next night and those same people that were, you know, upset, they're, they're cheering me, you know, but it just it just doesn't work, and I've seen it so so many times where you got a you got a son or you got someone who owns a track or whatever. They just they just don't need to race there. It's just not good business. Well, and so I I stayed away for for a long time, and uh, I mean I stayed away for a long time, and finally I I, knew, I could see the writing on the wall. This as well after my dad was <clears throat> after my dad had died, but. I, and had sold the track, but I could see the writing on the wall that it wasn't probably wasn't going to survive. And so one night we loaded up and we went up there and raced and like just kind of shocked everybody. Uh, but I knew it wasn't going to it wasn't going to make it much longer. Well, it, it, that was excellent context. Thank you on the history of you and your father. You know, it was even growing up in the Midwest, I would hear all the time, well, Ronnie won't race Cleveland because him and Joe Lee are fighting again. So you really cleared that up. I appreciate that. You know, yeah, one we, thing- didn't, we, didn't re- we didn't really fight, but, but there, there, honestly, there was a point, you know, and, and, and I, I'd, be, I'd be lying if I didn't, if I, if I said I didn't regret this, but there was, there was a long time that we we didn't even have contact. Um, I just I just felt like the best way that I could get along with him was to just you know kind of stay away. But right. uh, I wish it wouldn't have been that way. 
but because I really, you know, my dad certainly was 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 an idol and a hero, but um, there was there was a period there that was that was not good. Well, and I know obviously your father father's gone now. Um, I'm sure, you know, looking back, we could all if we all could do some things differently, we would do some things differently. But uh, you know, just what a what a racing heritage and history for your family, right? I mean, I, you guys were born to do this, right? You and him both. This is there was no other option for the Johnsons. I feel like no, it was going. I mean, I was going to do I was going to do this, you know, one way or the other. But um, you know, the I think of my dad often and, and honestly um i probably have realized you know in in recent years that um because when when i first got serious about racing you know my dad would you know he was he, he was kind of negative like you, you know you won't be able to race with those guys you don't you don't need to go there you don't need to go to you know this that and other you know you, you won't be able to make it and so i guess for I guess for 40 years, I've been trying to make him proud, you know, showing that I could, I guess I'm still doing that. I have no doubt that he is, he is very proud of you. And, you know, speaking of that, you, you know, you kind of grew up, you're a Tennessee guy, you're a Tennessee kid. Um, Scott Bloomquist and Jeff Purvis are Tennessee guys. They're Tennessee kids. You kind of cut your teeth in a way. I know you're Eastern Tennessee, Scott's Eastern Tennessee, you know, Jeff is central, central Western Tennessee, but a story that I heard about you with these two guys specifically, I have got to ask you about. I got as good as you were in the 80s and into the early 90s. I, I got the sense that you didn't think maybe you belonged with those two. And this is the story. The week before the World 100 in 1988, you beat Scott Bloomquist at Atomic on Friday night. You go to Green Valley, Alabama. You beat Jeff Purvis on Saturday. You did not go to the World 100 the next weekend, though, because you weren't sure you were good enough. The next weekend at the World 100, first and second place, 1988, Scott Bloomquist and Jeff Purvis. What? I, I can't. I just couldn't get over that when I heard that. You don't think you're good enough. You beat them both. They go run one and two. Do you remember that year, Ronnie, and thinking, "Ah, oh, shit, we should have gone to Eldora that, that weekend." Well, I, I don't know that I thought I should have went because we had had some success racing with those guys, but. I'd been to Eldora there again, you know, with Bobby Paul in 1981. It was the only time I'd ever been. And that was when they did everything in the daytime. And they, yeah. they let, you know, there was, you could bring multiple cars, which we didn't do that. But I went up there and failed miserably. And I didn't, I just didn't. I, the, the Midwestern tracks are just so much different if you've grown up, you know, in this area racing. Um, it's it's just a lot more of a challenge and so we went there in 81 failed miserably um didn't make the race didn't even come close and um so i didn't go back and i'd always heard about the world 100 you know in the mid late 70s you know some of my heroes were the guys out of the north georgia area here you know doug kenimer Tony hughes you know those guys had gone up there and won that and we raced with them uh, but you know, in in that period, you know, I'm just really getting started racing, and and I'm trying to I'm trying to race with them, and I'm trying to be like them. Um, but and again, racing at Atomic, and and that there would be times we'd go up there, and you know, and I'd question, I'm like, hey, where's H.E. Vineyard tonight? Where's Buddy Rogers? And they're like, oh, they went to that 
big race at Eldora up there in Ohio. <laughs> so, you know, I heard about it, but, um, you know, we, we got to go to Eldora some there with, when I got involved with the Millers and, um, certainly never won it, but we, I think I had a fourth and a fifth and we won a heat race or two. And, uh, when I drove for Scott, we had fast time for the dream, um, had some pretty decent runs with him there. Um, so I don't know. I don't, I don't really, you know, there again, my, my racing in, uh, 88 or so there, I'm, I'm pretty much, again, I got a couple local people helping out a little bit, but I'm, I'm really not in a, position to be going you know to world 100s and that well one thing that that i learned about you was and i made this mistake i'm a midwestern kid i see ronnie johnson roll in in this rig and he's by the way you always had the best looking fire suits and you were always the best dressed best clean hat clean cut rj looked he's just the coolest cat in the pits i made the mistake of always thinking well this guy surely even before the bob miller days he's got money right that was never the case, was it? You did more with less. And when I say that, I really mean it. The racers out there that think they didn't have a lot, Ronnie Johnson did not have a lot, did he? And you made you did more with less than I think a lot of people ever realized. Well, that may be true, but a lot of that was brought on by myself because I'm so independent. <laughs> I think I got to have my, and I'm not quite that bad, but I think I got to have my hands in every single thing that we do. I mean, we were like there in that period of time there when you're talking about in 88, you know, with, with Jeff and Scott, I was building my own cars. And because, because I like, I mean, I love to fabricate there. It goes back to this Jerry Mattis thing. And then another, another huge influence in my life was um, my dad's brother. One of my dad's brothers, um, he was a perfectionist. And a perfectionist never gets done. You, you're, you're never, I mean, you can't please yourself. You're... You know, you, you build a car and then you cut it up like this. This needs to be better. You know? <laughs> but but I was building I was building my own cars uh, by choice and uh, even um, kind of what stopped that was get getting involved with Rayburn um, and then you know masters built cars and stuff like that and I realized it was just it was just too hard to. Uh, it's just too much trouble to build your own car and you know, you don't have anybody to lean on, which again, I'm independent. I, I'm kind of like, I'd like to know what everybody else is doing and I don't want to do it that way. But, um, man, I used to build my own trailer. Um, I just, I just love doing that. I've one, one of the, one of these COVID nights I laid awake all night long making notes about everything that I thought was wrong with today's late model and a lot of it has to do with safety and construction and whether you know i'll probably never build that car but i got a i got a heck of a notebook <laughs> on one if we ever yeah. Listen, if, if I let you go through that notebook, I know this will be a four-hour podcast. I cannot let you go through <laughs> that notebook. However, give me give me one thing. Quickly give me one thing that you think, you know what, if I could make, wave a magic wand and fix today's late model, I'd do this. What's one thing quickly? The number one, very number one first thing I'd do is I would get the driver away from the left side of the car. We're too close to the left side of the car. I mean, guys have started making roll cages taller. They're not tall enough yet. Um, we're we're too close to the left side of the car for safety. Um, head and neck restraints and seats and all that have helped a lot. 
but man, for years we was racing them cars and you'll see them pictures and the guy's helmet sticking above the roll cage. We, <laughs> we did that for years. And, and even now I've seen, it's not uncommon at all anymore to go to a race and see a car flip. It's just not uncommon. It just happens. Um, and so I'll go look at the car and it almost always hits right there, you know, right there by the driver's head. And there's a big chunk of mud there. Okay. So even if the driver has got all the safety equipment and you got, um, you know, a raised roll cage, man, a guy's body moves a lot. I mean, I, I've seen it. I've seen, we, we were at a boys for a practice night uh, in the late fall. And, and a guy flipped right in front of me. I don't know if he broke a J-bar or whatever, but the car dug in and flipped violently. This guy ain't raced since then and may never race again. And um, I don't even think they even took him to the hospital that night. But his head wound up, you know, hitting, hitting the seat or the cage or the, um, you know, something there. But that that's the very first thing that I'd do. I'd get... I'd, I'd find a way to get that driver a, a good three or four or six inches farther to the right, and I'd get that roll cage on up there to make sure that, you know, if a guy rolls and hits on his roof or hits on the roll cage, that his body's not going to stretch and hit the ground or, 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 you know, or hit some part of the car. Well, again, I know that if I let you go, that'd be that'd be the the RJ notebook from COVID is a ten hour four part podcast, so we can't do that right now. But that's a good that was a good one. You mentioned Scott Bloomquist a couple times, and you mentioned you know you were his teammate, two of the most famous looking cars. You know, your five matched his eighteen. Oh my god, it was only about a year you guys raced together. But what was Scott Bloomquist like as a teammate, Ronnie? Well. All Honest that, answers only here. Honest it, answers only, please. Yeah. <laughs> well, all of that came about because he thought he was going. Uh, he thought he was going to get to go bush racing, right. and he wanted to keep the team intact. And it just so happened that, you know, it's in the '95 here. Scott's had this amazing season, amazing season, and now he's going to go run this bush stuff where he thinks he is. And like my guy's pulling out, Bob Miller's pulling out. You know, so I'm I'm looking for something to do here am i gonna try to buy bob stuff and he offered me all of it at a great deal i just didn't think i could do it um i just didn't think i could do it and uh so we had been parking beside scott and burying them a lot at the habitat for races and got to know them really well these guys are really successful um uh, i'm i'm kind of struggling to keep going and i can see you know that bob's pulling out one of the hardest things to do in racing then and now is to put a, a group of people together, put a small group of people together that believe in each other and have a common goal. So I was struggling with that. Um, I thought I was. And it, you know, I parked beside Barry and Scott and them guys, and it looked like they had a well-oiled machine. <laughs> so something came up about Scott was going to do this thing and, you know, he wanted to keep the team together because he wanted to run certain events. And if they did that, uh, something came up about, you know, would you be interested in maybe qualifying the car or something occasionally if they could pull that off? And I, you know, I was, so one thing led to another, Scott and I talked to the PRI show and, you know, we, we put something together to go racing. So 
by race time, Scott's deal had fallen through. He wasn't going bush racing. So now the two of us are racing out of the same rig. <laughs> uh, we're all in three cars and in, in the, you know, a trailer we had, we had, uh, two number fives, but one of them had a blue with seat in it. You know, it was kind of like the backup and we, we wind up, uh, basically our deal, my deal with Scott was we were going to go for the, uh, have a Tampa championship and we were going to run about five special events like the world of the dream topless Pittsburgher and maybe something else. And, and we did that. Um, but Scott is, Scott is so intense and, uh, he just, Scott doesn't make, it's just not in him to, as long as he's racing, as long as he's ever able to race, Scott's not going to be a very good teammate. Um, <laughs> and, and because he's just, he's so driven and he's so competitive and he's so intense. Um, you know, he, he's and but I mean, Hey, I was driving for him. He wasn't driving for me. So, um, but I'm, I'm certainly glad I did, did that deal. I learned a lot. And what was surprising is I thought I was going to go and learn all these trick things about, you know, and, and Scott's an innovator. He's, he's done a lot of stuff that's changed our sport product wise and that, but this guy's got, he's just, you know, in the end, it's, it wasn't the machine that we couldn't beat is the man. Um, he, he's just, again, he's just so, so confident and so intense, so intent on being, I mean, we'd ride down the road and you could just hear it. You know, he's planning on being the fastest car on hot laps. He's planning on having fast time. He's planning on leaving every lap. <laughs> and what I realized was the the reason we couldn't beat the guy is because he didn't know he could lose. I mean, it's just hard to, it's hard to beat somebody that doesn't know they can lose. You can beat him and, and, uh, you know, time is going to take a toll on all of us. Um, time catches up with all of us, but, um, but I mean, that was the deal. The guy just, he, he just, he didn't know he could lose. You know, you you mentioned we, we talked about Scott a lot, and one thing that he's famous for is being late to the racetrack. But really, let's be honest here. I love you, RJ, but no one is more famously late arriving to a racetrack than you. Uh, take set the record straight here, and I'm not talking late like a half hour before hot laps. I'm talking hot laps have started, and you're rolling in ten minutes into hot laps. I've heard it was because of the weather. You were always watching the weather. I've heard it's because you wanted to see who is at the racetrack. Why was Ronnie Johnson? always late to the racetrack because you were always late to the racetrack well the the honest truth there is i it's just my nature i just simply can't get anything done <laughs> until i get a sense of urgency i mean i know i know that christmas is december 25th every year but until december 25th i can't do christmas <laughs> and i mean i'm just that way and so you know we'll get out here and i always think i got Time. I always think I got more time. So on Monday, you know, we wash the car up and, you know, if the body's been up a little bit, I'm like, Hey, let's, let's just go ahead and get that body up. We're going to put one on it this week. Well then, you know, Wednesday turns into Thursday and you still don't have a body, but you started one. So you can't put that old one back on. And, but I'll just work on that car until, I mean, I'll just work on it until I look at the clock. And I'm like, man, if we don't go now, we're not going to make it. But, 
but I, I, I just have to have a sense of urgency for to get something done, and that, and that's the bottom line. Good answer, and that's 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 a very good answer. Last couple of things before I get to true or false, and this has been an incredible interview. Thank you so much. Um, two things I think before I get to true or false. I had a couple of people say, you know, he's because I'm OCD, Ronnie. I am diagnosed OCD. People know how obsessive compulsive I am. It's in my nature. So when I heard that you may also be OCD, I wanted to I wanted to bounce that off of you a little bit. Just how OCD are you? Because I heard some stories through interviewing and researching your background that was like, "Ooh, he might be worse than I am. How bad is it? <laughs> well, I, I was much worse in the past than I am now. But um, I've always kind of like, especially with my, well, with anything, but especially with my racing and my race cars and the equipment stuff, I pretty much know what I want. And, you know, and it's got, it's kind of like, it's got to be that way or, 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 or no other way. And I'm like, I'm like, I'm the kind of guy that when I leave to go eat, I know where I'm going. I know what I'm going to order. You know, I don't, I don't even need a menu. Um, <laughs> like, you know, I just, I pretty much know what I want and, and I want it a certain way. And that, that has been a real obstacle for me over the years, you know, with, I mean, that's, that's probably the biggest reason that I've struggled to um, work with people or, or allow people to work with me. Because again, I, I knew what I wanted and how, how I wanted it. And I've been guilty of taking some wrenches out of people's hands. Like, no, we're doing it this way, you know? And, <laughs> and that, so that, that, that's been a problem, but, uh, my, right now, my, my shop is a mess. It's not, uh, you, you know, if, there again, if you went to eat with me, you'd see me take, I, I do this all the time. I get my silverware out. I wipe it clean. I place it, you know, I'm, and so you'd think, man, this, this guy's shop's probably immaculate, but it's not. (laughs) (laughs) You've got a good excuse right now though, with the COVID. Uh, last couple of bonus things before I get to true or false with you. Uh, Randall Chupp told me, I got to ask you this story. He's like, ask him the story about the time he was at Ocala and we were leading the race and came in and took tires while we were leading the race with it. Everybody thought it was four perfectly good tires. I, I got to hear about this a little bit. It was a have a Tampa race at what is now Ocala, right? You were leading the race and Bob Miller about damn near killed you. Is that correct? That is true. Uh, we went down there. They had a practice night. And, uh, ever, you know, everybody practices and like this, this track is kind of damp and sandy, but it, it is sandy. We're in Florida. That, that's the key. Sand. But we're down there and everybody practiced and they'd qualified and they'd run their heats. And it was really easy to put too hard of a tire on. You couldn't go anywhere. So we get, you know, now we've been there about three days. So we're in this, this feature. It's a hundred lap feature. A lot of half a tempo races were 15,000 win. And we'd won our heat. We started second, and I think we ran second for a while. We wind up uh, passing Buck Simmons and getting the lead. And we go about lap 35, and there's caution. And Freddie Smith has blown a tire. Freddie's blew a tire. So now uh, it might have even been, for some reason, there was a red flag. Like, I don't think it was, he, I don't think Freddie was in an accident but whatever happened there was a red flag so we're all stopped on the front straightaway and at the time very few people had the big haulers this is 93 and we're racing with bob miller so he was one of the first guys to have like a toter home and that and when we went to ocala we didn't park inside there was a few of us that 
parked outside. And there again, we might have got there late, but I don't think we did because <laughs> we were there for practice. But we parked outside. So Randall is, is helping me. I mean, we had we had a good group at that time. We had a good group of guys. We had we had four or five guys, kind of some of them alternating. But we had when we went race, we had help. We had a good crew. So Randall's with me, and so since he's outside, he's able to walk down the grandstands. And he's looking at tires. And the reason Freddie blew a tire out is because it's wore out. I mean, we've run maybe 30 laps or so, and Freddie's blew a tire. And we've been there for three days, and nobody's – you couldn't wear – I mean, you couldn't get any tire wear, you know, in this <laughs> practice and that. So now this sand is drying out. So um, we, we go back racing, and they have uh, – a caution and Randall's out there waving me in the pits. So we're pitted outside. Like I said, most people were inside. We're outside. You know, so he stops me and, and, uh, and brings me in. And so he's gone in there and he's dug around in the trailer and he's had the guys mounting up tires. We're mounting up like what we used to call pavement rubber, the old 28s and 46s and that. So he gets the two right sides mounted up by the next caution. He brings me in, and we we put them on, but we couldn't we couldn't get back out, and we lost a lap. Okay, so yeah, this is where now, this gets interesting to me. Is the lap you go a lap down? You were leading, and now you're a lap yeah, down. <laughs> yeah, we're a lap down, and you know I can't see Bob Miller, but they say he's just beside himself. You know, I we, heard he was so pulled, pissed. Yeah. Yeah, we've pulled in, leading the race, and lost a lap trying to get <laughs> back out. So, but we go out there on those tires and run just a few laps. I mean, I'm passing them guys like they're bombers, you know. I'm just, you know, because they're all still on soft rubber, and there's lots of caution. You know, these guys are they're all having flats, so they're having flats, and they're just coming in and they're putting back on another D15 or a D20 or whatever. You know, we got these bricks on there <laughs> that just love heat and wear so randall brings me in again now he's got the left sides mounted so we come in we don't lose a lap but but between the fact that we had so much more speed than everybody else and the fact that these other guys are having flats and they're putting the wrong stuff on you know we end up we end up winning the race and there's there's only been two times ever as long as i've raced that i've gotten a lap down and won the race, and the other one was a local race, but but that happened, and we won fifteen grand. I have a Tampa race down there. I think that can only be matched. I keep saying last question, but I keep coming up with questions because you're so good. Uh, Randall also told me one time, Ronnie or uh, Bob Miller sent you a complete car ready to go for Speed Weeks. It's done. I'm talking to you. You know the story. I'm talking turnkey, ready to go. And Miller says, Randall, get down there and help him. Just make sure everything's good for speed weeks. The car's all ready. You should be fine. He gets down there. Not only is the car not ready, uh, Ronnie Johnson, the car is completely torn down to the last nut. And he said, when he called Bob Miller, Randall goes, I could feel the steam coming through the phone from Eastern Kentucky. Do you remember that too? That was actually the first car that he sent down. It was a Swartz car, yep. and Eddie Carrier had put it together. I mean, this thing may not have had an engine in it, but it came with an engine. Like, everything was there, but when I got it, and there again, that's just my, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, nothing against 
Charlie and Audi's car by any means because we ran good with it. But I'm looking at this car and I'm thinking, man, that ain't right. That could be better. That could be, you know. <laughs> so we took it apart and that really hurt. That, when Eddie found out that I'd taken that thing apart, that really, really hurt his feelings. But <laughs> uh, yeah, Bob shows up. We're going to we're going to East Bay. East Bay, yeah. And Bob shows up. Him and Barb show up on the way down. It's the first time they'd actually been to my shop. And they come in and like we're supposed to race like tomorrow night. <laughs> and this thing, there ain't no way. And uh, there ain't no way. But and it, I think it rained the first night out. So we made it. Um, we made it. But um, yeah, I am. <laughs> I, I used to really be really be bad about you know like i said i I just saw that car i'm like well this needs to be different this could be better and Uh, one you know like i got time so then the next thing you know you don't have time yeah (laughs) yeah all right here we go i we're gonna end it now true or false i got some quick hitting true or false questions for you to end this interview true or false ronnie johnson you once were victorious in a race you were not in a driver's suit, but you were wearing bell-bottoms, and as the rumor goes, platform shoes. You won a race in bell-bottoms and platform shoes. Is that true or false? That would be false. I've never had any platform shoes, but, <laughs> I mean, there again, uh, racing in the 70s in the mid, I mean, until the late 70s, nobody around here had a driving suit. I mean, they just weren't, they weren't required. If you just showed up, when I first started racing at Cleveland, if a guy had hopped out of a pickup truck with a driving suit on, probably got raped or something. <laughs> um, but like we, I mean, we used to race in t-shirts and that, and I definitely would have had, probably had some flare, flare bottom jeans on at that point, but, but no platform shoes. But you, you did. Okay. So there was the bell bottoms or bell bottom likes are true. It's the shoes that are the false part, correct? The shoes are the false okay. part. I don't. You couldn't. You couldn't drive a race car platform shoes. <laughs> well, but listen, I mean, I, know- I never. I never was. Uh, I never got into the disco movement or anything in the seventies. But in the in the you know seventy six, seventy eight, pretty much if you went and bought pants, you bought flare bottom pants. <laughs> okay. All right. P- listen, that came from your buddy Pup, so I maybe questioned <laughs> if it was totally true. Uh, true or false? You have never had a drop of alcohol in your life. True or false? I have tasted beer, but I am, but I, but I don't drink. I'm, I'm, I grew up around it and I saw some ugly and I am to this day, I'm just not comfortable around alcohol. Like if, if you want to drink fine, but I'm probably going to, I'm probably going to sit over here on another table or something. Okay. So basically 99.9% true basically is that one. Okay. And, uh, 99, nine, 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 cause I just, I, again, I just—it's just never interested me. I mean, all I've ever wanted to do is race these cars, and I and I want to do well at it. I can—I don't even know. I, I could only imagine what kind of personality would come out of me w- with some alcohol. So, so no, I'm 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 a teetotaler. Two more, two more to go, and I think this one also might be ninety nine point nine percent true or close to it. Um, you're from Chattanooga. You have lived, in essence, you're 65 years old. 
basically your entire life on the same piece of property in Chattanooga. You bought the house from your father, I think, and you may have lived one other place for a brief period of time, but in essence, where you live in Chattanooga, and I know the city has completely grown up around you, you've lived in that same spot, same corner, same garage for 65 years, right? Pretty much. When my dad, like when he won that World 600, he was driving for a guy out of Marietta, Georgia, and we moved to Marietta and lived in a house trailer for about a year until uh, like that, that guy that he drove for got killed a few months at the races a few months after they won that World 600. So we came back home. And then when I moved away from home, like the, the shop that I work out, I was right behind the house. So when I moved away from home, when I was whatever, 18 or so, um, I lived about three miles from here. So I was still at the shop every day. So yeah. pretty much, pretty much the truth. All right, last one, true or false. I was told that nobody in the country has ever been better on tires. I've had Randall Chep tell me this. I've had Tater Masters tell me this. I've had Pup Thomas, who would know, tell things about tires, tell me this. If you had to pick one guy in the history of dirt late model racing to win a race gun to your head on tire choice, it's Ronnie Johnson. Is that true or false, do you think? I I don't think I could. I mean, there's no way I could be the, the best, but... When when we used to have options, we used to have when the rules were, um, you know, when you didn't used to have to run two compounds, you know, I would I would search for. Uh, I mean, we run we won dirt races with pavement tires. Um, <laughs> you know, I'd I'd experiment with different brands and just I'd love to. I, I've won so many races by not having the same tire on the same right rear tire, maybe not even the same tires as the next guy, but it's also bit me. It's bit me numerous times, but we've won. I don't know what the races that I've won by not, I mean, it's just hard to be better than 23 other guys. If you got the same thing that they got and, and you know, the tire is the, is the catalyst. I mean, it's, it's what connects this whole, this whole week's worth of work to the ground, you know, when you get there. So that's, uh, that's the second most important thing on the race car. Uh, the, the driver being the first, but the tires are the second most important thing. But I used to get in trouble with Pup and, and Doug <laughs> Sofa, Pup's boss, um, because I'd think of something and I might call, uh, I might call who's your tire Midwest or I might call, who's your Atlantic and order some tires and immediately I get a call. Hey, what's going on? Why are, what are you doing here? I'm like, well, I'm trying to do something. So, that, you know, nobody else is doing, you know, whether maybe there's a loophole that didn't say you had to have 11 inch tire or, um, you know, the fact that I knew that other parts of the country, um, race on different compounds, but anymore, like, like even within the last year, you know, I've called Pup up and I've asked, you know, I, I want to order this compound. And he's like, well, they don't even make that anymore. <laughs> I'm like, they got to make, they got to make something like that. And he's like, man, well, they don't even make that anymore. Anything like that. So, um, but I used to, uh, we, we were one of the, definitely one of the first ones to ever run Hoosiers around here. And so early in the game that, they actually had recap tires on this is 78, 79. And there again, that was through my friend, Doug Sofa. He was, he was selling tires. He sold all different brands and 
And so I'm like, Hoosier, what's this? Nobody's got that, you know, and just, you know, just always want to be, always want to be a little bit different or trying to find an edge. Bonus true or false. I was told that you were a big fan of Dirt on Dirt's drive home segment on Facebook. Is that, <laughs> is that true or false? Well, I, I certainly became one when I was laying in the bed there, you know, in February and I couldn't, I couldn't do anything else. And, you know, so I'm trying to keep up with the races, but I couldn't wait to, uh, you know, to, you know, for you guys to come on because I could learn, I could learn more about what had gone on at the races at Volusia by watching that show than I could have if I'd have been there. (laughs) Well, good. I, I'm glad we were able to help you get through your sickness a little bit. Uh, I appreciate that. A few things I'm going to leave you with here. These are some of the things that were said about you, Ronnie. Uh, from the folks I talked to, researched, did the interview with. Uh, the interview when I was prepping for the interview with you. Uh, let me tell you this. He is without question the nicest person I have ever met. He is a true ambassador of our sport. Late model racing is better because of him. Every racer, I don't care what they said, wanted to be Ronnie Johnson. No one has ever been or will ever be cooler than RJ5. Ronnie Johnson's headstone should read, I did it my way, because there has never been a more unique person involved in the sport ever. And this is my favorite one. They called you the last of the Mohicans. And the person that told me this got very emotional when they were talking about you. They said, no one has ever dedicated their life more to the sport of dirt late model racing than Ronnie Johnson. And the sport and everyone that's ever heard of it is better off because he did so. Ronnie, when you hear all that, what do you think? Well, that's um, certainly a way that a racer wants to be remembered when it's all said and done, but, but all of that's not true. I mean, the part about, uh, dedicating my life to the sport, that absolutely is a true truth. I mean, I've, I have sacrificed and I've made everybody around me sacrifice a lot for a long time, especially early on, especially early on. And, um, but, and, and I'm certainly a better person now than I used to be, but, um, man, probably, they're in the eighties and the nineties. Um, I, I, and I still to, to a certain degree on race day, I'm a different person. I mean, on race day, it's, we're racing, you know, it's, that, that's it. You know, we're, there's no time for anything else, you know, don't get in the way. Um, but I used to just really be terrible. I've, I have mistreated a lot of people, um, and didn't, I, I certainly didn't get up on race day and, you know, and think, let's see who we can piss off today. I certainly didn't. I just was kind of like the Bloomquist deal. I mean, you just, there's a point there where you're so intense. You you know what you want, you know, what's got to be done and you know, it's got to be done now and it's got to be done right. You know, the first time. Um, but I'm, uh, I'm a little easier to get along with now, but, uh, that's, uh, if I, if, if I could do it all over again, one of the things that, that I would try to do is try to learn to be able to work with people a little bit better Well, early on. It was an excellent hour and 15 minutes with you. Um, I cannot tell you thank you enough, Ronnie. I look forward to seeing you at the track, hopefully at some point this season. And please, take care of yourself. I know you want to rush back to that race, race car, but listen, you've got Pup and Randall Chup and an army of people that are going to get your wife involved, and you're never going to go racing again if you come back too soon. Can, can you make me that promise? You're not going to come back too soon. You'll get healthy, please. I'm, I'm getting healthy. I, I mean, I really, 
I really feel good in the last couple of days, but I still, I get winded easily. I'm dying to get in the car. I know I could go out hot lap or practice. I'm not sure I've got a feature in me or not, but um, you're probably going to hear about me in a car soon. <laughs> I'm, I may, I'm, I'm quietly making some plans. We'll see how it turns out. Ronnie, thank you very much, bud. Have a great night, okay? All right, thank you. Do you want the deal of the century? That's 100 years, people. I've got the deal of the century. If you buy a car or truck from Baum, Chevy, Buick in Clinton, Illinois, new or used, you get a lifetime subscription to DOD and Flow Racing with it. They are truly the best human beings in the car or truck buying arena I've ever met. In my next car, I will buy at Baum, Chevy, Buick. Check them out at BaumChevyBuick.com. That's B-A-U-M, BaumChevyBuick.com. They're the best in the business and a lifetime subscription that comes with it to DOD and flow. That's literally several thousand dollars. Check out bombchevybuick.com today. Many kids are too young to remember this, but you don't really get how cool Ronnie Johnson was or still is. I mean, listen to that interview. He's just a cool dude. Riley Hickman told me, Ronnie Johnson was dirt track racing. Perfect suit, perfect hair, nothing out of place. That guy was James Dean in a Barry Wright. I love that quote so much. So to really get to dive in with him for an hour and 20 minutes was awesome. Thank you to RJ5, and I do hope he's feeling better, and I hope he continues to recover uh, from COVID. When I finished my Kenny Wallace Rigsby report, I told you I had Ronnie Johnson queued up, and I think I've got my next guest ready as well, the one and only Larry Moore. Late model legend, an all-time character in our sport, one of the greatest to ever do it, and I'm looking forward to interviewing him. That one should hit, I think, early April. Um, you know, I'm on pace to do 20 Rigsby reports this year, two March, two April, two, two every month. I think I think Larry Moore early April, prob- probably. Thanks to everybody for tuning in. Keep checking out Dirt on Dirt and Flow Racing. I'd like to think we're changing the game a little bit in short track racing, and good things are going to keep uh, just happening. Thanks, guys. We'll be back in a few weeks with the Rigsby Report. 